You ladies did well for not ever hearing that song before. <laughs> Amen. Well, I'm glad we're warm. Amen. It's a good thing to show up and, and you got heat. We sometimes overlook those blessings from the Lord, but to have heat, to have shelter, to have water, uh, those are some good things, and I praise God for that. I, I was uh, studying the other day, and the phone rang, and it was Mike Zygan. Mike was on his way. He had been at Langley for some meetings. Some of you remember Mike. He used to teach Sunday school for us, retired F-15 Air Force pilot, and uh, he was on his way up to the Pentagon, and he called just wanted to check in with me, and we were talking, and he said, you know, I got a call from Jacob the other day. Jacob's in Minot, North Dakota. And uh, <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, the boy called me, and he said, Dad, I got a problem. My, my pipes are frozen. It's 60 below up here. And I said to Mike, he's got a bigger problem. He said, what do you mean? He married a girl from Florida. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. I know it's, it's cold, it's hard to get out, and uh, I appreciate you coming. If you've uh, looked up on the screen, you see uh, my sermon title this morning, and uh, you may be wondering if the subject matter of today's sermon is going to be about the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the New York Stock Exchange until this week. I found out, and you know, as I looked it up, it's the largest marketplace for securities and, and other exchange board investments in the world. It had its beginning in 1972 when 24 stockbrokers met under the, for the very first time under a buttonwood tree on what is now called Wall Street in New York City. It was formally constituted as the New York Stock and Exchange Board in 1817. And for the majority of the New York Stock Exchange's history, ownership has uh, been controlled by its members. And the number of members are uh, 1,366 people. Um, the only way to obtain membership is to be able to buy a seat from an existing member. In other words, if they get old and don't want to do it anymore, you can maybe buy their seat. Um, pretty interesting. Well... The New York Stock Exchange is certainly not the great exchange that we're going to be talking about this morning. The great exchange that I want to talk to you about is owned exclusively by God. And its membership is open to anybody and everyone. Uh, even if you don't have any money, even if you don't have anything you want to trade or buy, you can be a member of the great ex exchange. Now, I, I want you to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. I'm going to share with you a spiritual truth that we Baptists would say is one of those essential beliefs. Uh, please hear the spiritual truth in what I'm about to say. You know, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that very moment, instantly, instantly, the Holy Spirit, not the Spirit of God, but God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes and he moves inside of you to dwell in you permanently. Amen? That's what the Bible says. So, so let's, let's think about this. Um, instantly, when you accept Christ, 
All of God comes to dwell in you. Not part of him now and some of him later. But all of God comes to live in you. 100% God of God lives inside of you. Now, pay attention. From that moment on, God will spend the rest of your life trying to get the rest of you. Think about that. You know, being a Christian, the Christian life is all about surrender. And that's really hard for us. We, we don't like to surrender. We, we want to win. We want to own things. We want to control things. We want to be in charge. But Jesus wants us to surrender. And that, my friends, is a daily exercise. That's something you have to do every morning when you get up. You have to choose to surrender your life to the Lord. So I, I want you to do a self-evaluation this morning for just a minute. Uh, you, you can do it. I can't do it for you. I had to do it for myself. But think about this. How much? What's the percentage of you that God has control of? How much of you does God now have? You need to check that daily, certainly weekly. You need to know. You know, a, a spiritually wise person, man, woman, boy, or girl, will understand this and is willing to grow wiser. In other words, they're willing to surrender more and more of their life to Christ. That is something that you should go through life doing. Um, I, I want to point you to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Solomon wrote, Wisdom has built her spacious house with seven pillars. She has prepared a great banquet, mixed the wines, and set the table. She has sent her servants to invite everyone to come. She calls out from the heights overlooking the city, Come home with me, she urges the simple. To those without good judgment, she says, Come and eat my food and, and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your foolish ways behind and begin to live. Learn how to be wise. Learn how to be wise. Anyone who rebukes a mocker will get a smart retort. Anyone who rebukes the wicked will get hurt. So don't bother rebuking mockers. They will only hate you. But the wise, the wise when rebuked will love you all the more. So teach the wise and, and they will be wiser and teach the righteous and they will learn more. We could certainly ask the question, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is simply looking at life from God's perspective. Looking at life from God's perspective, we don't always do that, but we should. Real wisdom is very, very different than knowledge. Uh, you can have a great deal of knowledge. We, we, we call it book smart. So you can have a whole lot of head knowledge and not be wise. The Bible is clear. Wisdom is far, far better for us than, than knowledge. Charles Lowry said you can get knowledge from looking around. In other words, you can just look anywhere. And we have access to so much information today. You can fill your head with a lot of facts. He said you can get knowledge from looking around, but you get wisdom from looking up. Looking up, looking to God. Proverbs chapter 9 teaches that wisdom is a personal call. A personal call. It, it's, it's not going to call the group. It calls you as an individual. Look at what verse 3 says. He said, 
she has sent her servants to invite everyone to come. She calls out from the heights overlooking the city, come home with me. God always is personal with each of us. God also has a call on every one of our lives. I, I said that to you last week. I've emphasized that many times. God has a call on every one of our lives. He, he first calls us to be saved, to be redeemed, to be brought back into fellowship with him, to become a part of his family. And then he calls us to grow and to serve as his disciples. So wisdom gives God's invitation, gives it to us. And wisdom's invitation involves a personal choice on our part. In other words, you have to choose wisdom. It's a choice you make. You have to want to be wise and grow in wisdom. Thank God verse 1 and 2 gives us some really good news. Look back at verse 1. Wisdom has built her spacious house with seven pillars. She has prepared a great banquet and mixed the wines and set the table. Well, pastor, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean? The seven pillars here convey the sufficiency of God's house. Can you see that front porch with seven pillars? The idea is God's house is sufficient. God's house is full. It is full size. It has plenty of room for everybody. God's never going to run out in his house for places to, for people to be. And it's also fit for a banquet. His, his house is well supplied. It's well furnished. It's well equipped. Notice also that he's made sure that the wines are mixed. The wines are mixed. In that day, wine was typically diluted with water. One part wine, eight parts, up to eight parts water. It was done that way to reduce the power of intoxication. That way anybody could drink it. They could uh, give it to children and they could drink it and it would not affect them. It was also mixed with spices to be able to flavor up the water. You know, when you drink water and when you get off Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Mountain Dew and all that stuff that we drink um, and you start drinking water, you get tired of water after a while. So Joyce has got some of this flavored fizz water. I don't know what, it's, it's flavored drinking. And I'll mix about half and half, half water, half drink. It makes it easier to drink, right? And you don't have all that sugar, you know? Well, they mix spices into their wine. Song of Solomon chapter 8 verse 2 says, I will bring you to my house, my childhood home, and there I will teach you. I will give you spiced wine to drink, my sweet pomegranate, pomegranate wine. So it was watered down. It was diluted. It was flavored so that people could drink. But I want you to notice that unmixed wine was always referred to as strong drink that can lead a life to a life of trouble and pain and regret. Proverbs 23 asks the question, who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the tavern, at the bar, in the nightclub, trying out new drinks. Don't let the sparkle and the smooth taste of wine deceive you. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous serpent. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations, and you will say crazy things, and you will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mask. 
And you will say, they hit me. But I didn't feel it. I didn't even know, know it when they beat me up. When I wake up, when will I wake up so I can just buy another drink? Man, I lived with a grandmother who became an alcoholic. And that was her life. So many times my mom would send me down to get a cup of sugar or a little bit of flour or some cooking oil. And I would have a key so that if when I knocked on the door, Granny didn't come to the door, I could get in to check on her. And there were a lot of times I found her laying in the floor where she had drunk herself into a stupor and fell and couldn't get up. And she'd busted the skin on her arm or hit her head and she was bleeding and she didn't even know it, didn't feel it. That's what drink will do to you. Notice that Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine produces mockers and liquor leads to brawls and whoever is led astray by drink cannot, cannot be wise. Verse 1 says, Wisdom has built her spacious house with seven pillars and she has prepared a great banquet and mixed the wines and set the table. When I was reading this verse the other day, I, I thought of a psalm that we, we know by heart. We, I heard it yesterday. Uh, read at a, a funeral, Karen Jones's funeral, Psalms 23. King David wrote that psalm. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I have everything I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. And even though I walk through the dark valley of death, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Now, notice verse 5. He writes, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies, a banquet. I can see the table just covered with food. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. And you welcome me as a guest, anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with your blessings. Surely your goodness and your unfailing love. There's that word we've been talking about. The love of God, the hesed, the, the loving kindness that he has for us. He says, your unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know what kind of house you have. We have a small house. I, I like it because the older I get, the less I have to clean. And, uh, but, you know, heaven's, heaven's going to be so much better than anything we live in here on earth. So much better. Would you agree with me that we have a wealthy God who spares no expense and provides everything we need? Would you agree with me on that? Amen. Paul wrote, since God did not spare even his own son. Think about that. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to take somebody from this crowd over here because they're really good and, and I'm going to sacrifice them and it's going to make things all right. No. He said, son, go do my bidding. Do what I've sent you to do. God did not spare even his own son, but he gave him up for all of us. So won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? 
You know, let, let, let me just kind of break that down for us for just a minute. What does that mean? It simply means this. Your salvation costs God his son. You, you've heard me say this before. I, I've got two daughters. I don't, I don't have a son. But if I have to give up one of my daughters for you to be able to go to heaven, you're going to hell. I, I, I'm sorry. I love you. But I don't love you like God loves you. I don't know of any of us that would give up our mate or our child to save somebody else. I might give up my life to save you, but I wouldn't give theirs. But God did. God did. He gave us his greatest joy, his one and only son, so that you could live with him in heaven for all eternity. Do you believe that? Do you? If you do then I would say, friend, have enough wisdom to allow God to build your house. Let him build you a great house. He built his house. Let him build your house. He can certainly help you build the house that you're trying to build here. And I'm not talking about a physical house. I'm talking about a home. I'm talking about relationships. Let him help you build that around him. You know, the, one of the beautiful promises we have is that Jesus has been gone now for, what, 2,000 years? What's he doing for us? He's building us a home in heaven. Wow. If it only took him a handful of days to build the world, you know, the creation, what's your home going to look like? I can't wait. It's going to be beautiful. Proverbs says, teach the wise, and they will be wiser, and teach the righteous, and they will Learn more. So here, here's a big question that, that I want us to all just think about. It's really what this sermon's built around. Have you ever considered that accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior has some practical implications? We've just been talking about spiritual implications, the fact that, that you know, he comes to dwell in us. That's a spiritual truth. But how about practical implications? Well, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me, let me just suggest three things. Here's the first one. Here's the first practical implication I want you to wrap your mind around. First of all, when you take Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, what you're being asked to do is to commit yourself to a new way of life. A new way of life. When you become a Christian, he's asking you to, to submit yourself to a new way of life. Now, just by a show of hands, how many of you have been in the military? Okay. When you joined the military, did you get to continue to live your life the way you've been living it? <laughs> it changed day one, didn't it? Yeah, they turned your life inside out. That was the whole idea. They broke you down in boot camp to build you up the way they wanted you to be. Well, guess what? Your life changed. And when you become a Christian, there are things about your life that needs to change. Salvation is not just about getting a free ticket into heaven. Your salvation means far, far more than that. If you truly take Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're agreeing to some things. First of all, you're agreeing to submit to his lordship. We know the Bible says Jesus is Lord. But he wants to be your Lord. Your Lord. That, that's important. 
Peter said, so let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord and Messiah. He is Lord whether he's your Lord or not. He's Lord. And every knee will one day bow to him. It's better to bow now than later. Amen? Paul wrote, God is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. He also wrote these words, you do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So if you don't belong to yourself anymore, who do you belong to? Well, if you've accepted Christ, you belong to him. You belong to Jesus. You belong to God. That, that, that's what making him Lord really means. It means to whom I belong. If you're a true believer, then you belong to Jesus. You don't belong to yourself anymore. It also means that you surrender to his authority. Boy, our world has a problem with authority, right? That's why God gave children parents. Hello? For you children, your parents are to be your authority. And if you don't learn to respect and accept their authority, you'll never be able to accept the authority of God. But when we make him Lord, we're to come under his authority that's a part of it. Now, Jesus said, he told his disciples, I have been given complete authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. That's everywhere. There's no one that has more authority than Jesus Christ. So when we accept him as Lord and Savior, we submit to his lordship, we surrender to his authority, and we also embrace his values. His values, that means you begin to care more about what God cares about than what you used to care about. It means you have to exchange your old priorities for God's priorities and your old values for his values. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Verse 33 has been a theme verse for me here at Harvest for 23 years. This is it. Jesus says, so don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are deeply concerned about these things? Your heavenly Father already knows all that you need. And he will give you all you need from day to day if. And I want you to circle that word if. If. Because we don't all do this. But he'll give you everything you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Make it a priority, the priority in your life. When you make Christ the Lord of your life in the truest sense, it means that you have died to this world and are alive to Christ. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38 and 39. He said in his first three words, if you refuse. God created us as free will agents and we have the ability to say yes or say no to God. We can choose to follow him and we can choose to reject to follow him. He says if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me then you're not worthy of being mine. And if you cling to your life, if you hold on, 
And guys, I remember when I was 16 years old, I remember the night that I gave my heart to Jesus. I'd been holding on to that pew for three nights, just as hard as I could hold on to it. I was not going to let go. That's what we do with our lives. We know what God wants us to do. We go, no. No. But I remember somebody teaching me, you have to let go. That's what surrender is. He said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you give it up for me, you will find it. Charles Stanley said, of course, the things of the earth, and we're talking about money and prestige and authority and possessions, they will always compete for your loyalty in a compelling manner. Once they get into your life, you don't want to let them go. But when you belong to Jesus, you realize that those things are temporary and unworthy of your devotion. In other words, they're not that important anymore. I know people worry about what they're going to have to give up if they follow Jesus. But I'm almost 70 years old, and I can tell you nothing that I gave up do I want back because the Lord's given me a whole lot better. Yeah. Not only are you being asked to commit yourself to a new way of life with new priorities and new values, but you're also being asked to commit yourself to a different set of plans for your life. Oh, man, when, when God called me to preach, that was one of the things I struggled with. I had dreams. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I, I had charted a course. I was, I was working to be a professional artist. Yeah. Joyce and the kids would go to bed, and I'd paint for three or four hours. Sometimes it would be 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd still be painting, and I had to go to work early the next day but I was devoted to that well it should be the Lord's plans and not our plans that dictate our life yeah, we, we, we've said how many times we, we make plans and what does God do he laughs <laughs> he also said this if you refuse to take up your cross well what in the world is that pastor well, you, you could put the word God's plan right here. If you refuse to take up God's plan and, and follow me, Jesus said, you're not worthy of being mine. It's interesting. These words that Jesus spoke may not mean a whole lot to you. They may not. But no one living during the New Testament time period, anywhere in the Roman Empire, and especially there in Palestine, would have missed the point that Jesus was trying to make when he said these words. They would have known exactly what Jesus meant. You should know what he meant. You see, the word cross would have stopped them in their tracks. If they'd been walking along at a fast pace and somebody said, cross, they would freeze. They would have, it would have seized their attention, the attention of their hearts with fear. You see, the cross was known as a symbol of extreme, excruciating pain and heartless cruelty. And most of all, it symbolized death. Death. History is recorded that just a few years before Jesus spoke these words that, that a, a zealot named 
a zealot named Judas, he, he rounded up a mob of rebels to fight against the Roman occupation forces. So there was a true insurrection here. Not, not, not a January 6th protest. I'd throw that in, okay? This was a true insurrection. They're, they were planning to really fight against the powers to be, but it was easily quelled. They were no match for Roman muscle. But then to make a point and to discourage future uprisings and, and to just teach the Jews a lesson that they never forget, there was a Roman general, Varus, who, who ordered the crucifixion of 2,000 Jews there in Galilee. They say that from one end of Galilee to the other, there were 2,000 crosses with dead bodies and bloody crosses that lined. You couldn't miss it. Everybody understood it. So do you get the picture when it says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine? You have to remember that Jesus spoke these words to 12 disciples. And they knew immediately, immediately, what taking up their cross was all about. It was going to require them to abandon themselves without reservation to the lordship of Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost, even if it meant their death. And if you read about the life of the apostles, minus Judas, we know he was a traitor. He was never a true disciple. If you, that leaves 11, and if you know anything about their, their ending, 10 of the 11 died a martyr's death. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the way that his Lord was crucified. John, the only one who lived to see death naturally, died in prison on the Isle of Patmos. Now, John MacArthur wrote this about this passage. He said, no matter how terrible they may be, the hardships and tragedies of human life, that often befall Christians are not the crosses of which Jesus speaks. Such things as a cruel spouse, a rebellious child, a debilitating or terminal illness, the loss of a job, or destruction of a house by tornado or flood may strongly test a believer's faith, but those are not crosses. They're not crosses. So, what is the cross that Jesus is speaking about that we're to bear? Well, he certainly was not talking about his cross. His cross will never be your cross. His cross was meant for him. There's another cross for you to bear. The cross that Jesus speaks of here for us is a willingness to sacrifice everything that we have, including our life, if necessary, for the sake of Jesus Christ. To walk away from everything. To go follow Jesus. It has been described as something, anything, that like the Lord himself, a believer must take upon himself when it is thrust upon him or her by the unbelieving world because of their relationship to God. You know, we joke sometimes and we say, oh, that's suffering for Jesus. No, th this is suffering from Jesus, for Jesus. When you give up everything, even your life for the Lord. Your, your cross is whatever God calls you to bear for the cause of Christ and for the kingdom of God. God's plans for your life often will change your direction. So you are called to exchange your plans for his plans. 
Uh, Tony Evans said it this way. He says, your cross has to do with your public identification of Jesus Christ. To bear your cross is to endure hardship specifically because you are a visible and verbal follower of Christ. If you are unwilling to do that, then you are unworthy of Christ. In other words, your relationship to Christ is suspicious. If I say the word John Bunyan, do you know who I'm talking about? John Bunyan? He wrote, what, Pilgrim's Progress? He was a Puritan preacher in England who refused to conform to English law that pertained to religious worship. In other words, he would not be told when or where or what to preach by the Church of England. And for his refusal to stop preaching the way God put it on his heart to do, he spent 12 years in prison. When he was arrested and brought before the magistrate to be sentenced to prison, this is what he said. He said, Sir, the law of Christ hath provided two ways of obeying. He said, The one to do that which I in my conscience do believe that I am bound to actively do. That's number one. What was he talking about? He was talking about preaching. Preaching the gospel unashamedly without watering it down. He said, and where I cannot obey it actively, there I am willing to lie down and suffer what they shall do to me. In other words, when I am no longer able to preach, if need be, I'll go to prison. And he did. He did. That's allowing God to change the plans of your life. The, the final expectation that I want to share with you this morning is God's desire for you uh, to commit your life to a new perspective on life. This new perspective is, a, is totally opposite from everything that we've ever been taught, anything we've ever learned. We, we've all grown up in a culture here in America of instant gratification and immediate pleasure and imminent power. In other words, We've all been taught to want and expect what we want when we want it, right? Yeah. And on top of that, we've got an old sin nature in us that, that wants to be waited on hand and foot, so to speak. Um, if you can, we would be honest, the average person, every one of us, would rather be waited on than for us to go wait on somebody else. That's the way it's always been. We want to be served. Uh, we live in a day when service has gone out the window. Gone, right? But we still demand service. We still demand it. Jesus changed all of that. He gave us a new perspective on what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to be. Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus said, but among you, and he's talking about believers, among you it should be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Charles Stanley wrote that Jesus said that he was Lord. And he became the servant of all, and you're to reflect that, manifesting his heart of sacrificial and loving service. When you looked at the life that Jesus lived in the public, 
His life was very different from the people around him. He was a genuine servant of others, and he wants us to be like him. He wants us to be a servant of people. We were told when we were in Thailand doing mission work over there that when we encounter different smells or different things, just, you know, things that we thought rather odd and things that we were asked to do and required to do to say something like this, my, that's different. My, that's different, yeah. Well, what, what the Lord's calling us to do, my, that's different. It's so different than what we would think of today. And yet Jesus said, if you cling to your life, the life that you have, if you cling to what you are right now, he said, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up for me, you will find it. I want you to think about the words that I'm about to say to you. I'm going I'm to make some, I'm going to say some words and I'm going to share some phrases. And I want you to process them because I think, I think our world just kind of slides over them so fastly that we don't, we don't even address them in our life. How about the word commitment? Commitment. Does it mean what it used to mean? I told somebody yesterday, words don't have definitions, they have usage. We all use words differently. Commitment. Sacrifice. Sacri somebody told me the other day, I give... But I'm not really sacrificing. How about taking up your cross? How about putting to death the old man? The old me? How about surrendering to God with reckless abandonment? How about the word surrender? We're taught to win. To own. To hold on to, to achieve, to gather, to grab. When I think about these words, the first thing that comes to my mind is that they're easy to read. And it might even be easy for us to have a conversation about, but the truth is, they're all hard to do, right? <laughs> They're just not easy to accomplish, to do. Why? It's because most of us love and live for the life that we have. We've worked all our life to get where we are, and we love it. We live for it. Steve Lockhart wrote these words. He said, we are confident in our jobs. I, I want to change that word confident to another word. Um, how about the word comfortable? We are comfortable in our jobs. We're comfortable in our family relationships. We're comfortable in our church attendance and our service. But God has so much more in store for us when we're willing to relinquish control and let go of what we have and totally surrender to all that he is. Boy, that takes you to a new plateau, doesn't it? A new high. Friends, Jesus said that that is when we will truly experience his life. So how do you find and describe his life? Wow. 
I guess if I could describe the life of Christ and how he lived it and you know, how he, how he uh, demonstrated who he wants us to be, I would use the phrase humility. We're talking about his life being a life of humility. It was a life of surrender. His life is a life that, that he wants us to live being dependent upon him. I heard somebody this week say, I've always done this my way myself. I, I've never needed anybody to do anything for me. I've done it my way. Well, he said, no, depend on me. His life is also a life of power, but not your power and not power for you. Instead, it's a, it's a power to affect others with the message of the gospel. It's the power that he puts inside of us to be able to tell people about Jesus Christ so they can learn about him and know him. Here's the great paradox of what Jesus said. Great paradox. You must lose your life. But when you do, you discover his life. That, my friends, is the great exchange. Your life, what you've worked for all your life, to give it up for his life. John MacArthur wrote that the one, or excuse me, the love of one's life, the love of self, is, is often the greatest, greatest hindrance to full commitment to Christ. Yes, Jesus calls his disciples to total self-denial, including, if necessary, sacrifice to the point of death. When we're willing to lose our life, that is when we discover his. That is the great exchange. The question is, have you made that? Here's the question that's really on the table today. Are you willing to make that exchange? Are you willing to give up your life for his? Are you? Do you really believe that God is the rewarder of those who does? Do you believe that he will bless you if you do that? Do you believe that God has your best interest at heart? Do you? See, that's what it boils down to today. Is what we have worth giving up for what he can give. Most of us have a hard time with that. I confess. I'm, I'm, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. It's easy to say it. It's hard to do. But it's a choice we make. It's a choice you must think about.